Greetings, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to mention that I will be sharing this message with very little preparation. Actually, all I do is I ask God to lead me to a particular chapter in the Bible and I meditate on it for a half an hour. And in that half an hour, I take a few brief notes and then immediately after I share the word. That is because I am seeking for God to speak through me by his Holy Spirit. As it says in 2 Peter chapter 4, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. We are to seek to allow the spirit of prophecy to rise up through us, to transcend our own tendencies and understanding with God's words, God's leading into all truth by the Holy Spirit of truth. And as part of that focus, I also cast lots before God to receive those particular passages that he is wanting to minister to you who in the foreknowledge of God has come across this message and to the corporate body of Christ. Today I receive Genesis chapter 3. Now I don't preach this message every day. I do do the meditation almost every day, except maybe Sunday. So I also want to share some of the passages I received in the last two days, which I did not preach from because there were some very um, amazing ways that there was obviously passages being linked together through the casting of lots that had a very special understanding and theme. First of all, I want to read Genesis chapter 3, and then we will then begin to share by the Spirit of God. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit of the thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees 
of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and on the dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Edom to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. <clears throat> Before I continue, I'm just having a brief drink of water. First, before I begin to share, I do want to point out what I received in the last two days as well. I do not see how the passages yesterday could be possibly linked, but they, these things happen when I begin to preach, and suddenly there's a tremendous link between passages that stands out very clearly. 
And so on Tuesday, November the 4th, I received Psalms 35. And I just uh, made a brief, some brief notes on the Psalms, this Psalm, and it says this, in regards to those that fight against us, who are the ones that are following the Lord, we see that King David declares to God to take hold of shield and buckler and to stand for his help and to use offensive weapons against these enemies to stop their persecution. He declares to God to say to his soul that he is his salvation. Can you imagine? He's making almost as it were a command to God, and he's saying, God, tell me that you're my salvation. And then he makes decrees of destruction against his enemies. He then, as it were, commands, although I think it's irreverent to say that he's commanding God. So what I say here is he then declares to God that his very bones or the core of who he is will declare the glory of God and worship with great joy when God does this for him as he faces the severe persecution from his enemies. Then on Wednesday, I received Genesis 27 and Psalms 22. Sometimes I cast lots more than once if I feel, well, what possibly could come out of this passage? But I saw quite a interesting link between Genesis 27 and Psalms 22, though they seem totally different in many regards. But as I began to meditate on these two passages, there was a tremendous link between them. Now, Genesis 27 is the story or the account, the historical account of uh, Jacob uh, stealing the birthright of Esau, stealing the blessing that was, uh, pardon me, is Isaac, pardon me, it was Isaac, yeah, Jacob stealing the birthright of Esau. Isaac was to bless Esau, the firstborn, and we know the story. I won't go into it. Uh, Jacob pretended that he was Esau and put goat skins on his hands so that he felt like Esau's hands and so on by listening to the advice of Isaac's wife, Rebekah. So I received that passage, and then I received Psalm 22, which, a, which is a prophetic utterance of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, in which it describes him in the suffering that he's going through, as all, and also in what he is praying, and, and, and in the midst of this atoning sacrifice, that God in the flesh is giving himself as so that we could come forth and be his corporate bride individually and corporately. And then, of course, there's the passage I read today. I don't see any link at this point, but I trust right now as I continue to speak for the Spirit of God to rise forth and to guide me 
into all truth. For it says in the word of God that the comfort of the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, will guide us into all truth. And it is my earnest prayer and desire that he would begin to teach and to show forth light on what is being brought forth here today. And so I'm always seeking to listen and sense and hear what God wants me to speak on from second to second. I'm in a consciousness of being with God in preaching this message that I might be in the spirit of prophecy to speak as the oracles of God rather than my own words. I believe the first thing I want to share with you is what I received on Wednesday in the, story, the historical account of Jacob stealing the birthright of Esau. I wrote a brief paragraph on this passage. I said, the hunger to seek for those things of lasting worth, including the kingdom of God, is what must be behind all our own ways of deception in order for God to bring circumstances to judge and expose our deception so that it is unraveled from our life. Esau in this passage represents satisfaction with self and the things of the world as indication of never having come to true rebirth into the knowledge of God. Isaac did not know that he was going to be sacrificed on the altar in regards to the account of Abraham being tempted by God to take Isaac, his son, and offer him on the altar, to slay his son on the altar. And we all are very familiar with that account. But here is Isaac, and he's old of age, and he can't see, and he wants to bless his sons before he dies. The Isaac that experienced the surprise that Abraham was about to offer him on the altar. And we know that as Abraham was about to plunge the knife into Isaac, and you can imagine the shock that Isaac was going through, knowing his father was a man that listened to God. And here God is going to allow this to happen to me, your son? Can you imagine the surprise in Isaac? And here we have Isaac years later. He was spared that that he thought would happen to him, that looked like certain death for him. And God was testing Abraham in that experience. And an angel, in a loud, thunderous voice, no doubt, said to Abraham, stop, do not put the knife into the sun. And he said to Abraham in that passage, if you look at, I believe, Genesis 24, now I know that Abraham truly fears me. And he went on to promise Abraham because he obeyed Abraham, even to the point of being willing to offer his son Isaac, that he would bring great blessing into his life. 
Yes, it was a shock. A shocking surprise that God said what he said to Abraham. And it was a shocking surprise to Isaac that here he is with the knife about to come down upon him. And I'm sure he was wondering, how could God be just and good to let this happen to me? And so here we have Isaac wanting to bless his two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now, the thing with Esau is this, that he had two women that he was married to that were very grievous to Rebekah, Isaac's wife, because they did not show respect to Rebekah. To Rebecca. They were women from another tribe that was no doubt idolatrous and filled with the cares of this world. And so they had no sense of honor and respect of the fear of God, and therefore it also was evident in the, their attitude and their behavior and insensitivity towards Rebecca and Isaac. And so Rebecca says to Jacob, I don't want Esau to have the blessing. I want you to have the blessing, even though he's the firstborn that deserves it. So here, I want you to obey my voice, Jacob. I want you to obey my voice, Jacob. Jacob had the fear of God, and he had a lot of respect and honor towards his mother and towards his dad that was now completely, almost completely blind. And so maybe more out of respect to obey Sarah than his own desire, although I'm sure he had the desire to have that blessing. Rebecca tells him, disguise your voice, put on Esau's raiments, talk like Esau, and I'll put some skins of, a, what was it, a sheep or a goat over your hands so that your hands feel hairy like Esau's. And so Isaac, that's soon to die, lays his hands thinking that it's Esau when it's actually Jacob and blesses Jacob. And just as Jacob is almost not completely out of the room, just leaving the room, Esau walks in, and to Isaac's shock, he discovers that he blessed Jacob with the first and primary and far greater blessing. And so Esau is upset because he says, well, Jacob already stole my birthright. Now he's taken my blessing from Isaac away. But Esau didn't have regard for things of lasting value, which also speak of him not having regard for things of eternal worth and value in the fact that he also married two women that did not know God, that were idolatrous and that were totally lacking in the fear of God and disrespectful towards Rebekah and Isaac as it's clearly indicated in this passage of Scripture. And so Jacob 
has surprise in regards, I should say Isaac has surprise in regards to this. But then Jacob experiences surprise when he discovers that Esau has such a hate towards him that he's decided to kill him. And he hears this news indirectly that uh, leaks up to Rebekah through probably the servants. And so Rebekah tells him, you got to get out of here. I don't want to have you lost and then possibly Esau lost. The word Jacob means deceiver. He will take by the heel. And so Jacob flees, and he's working for Laban. Laban, the Syrian, a relative of Rebekah. And it's a long story, but again, we discover that Laban deceives Jacob, the one that used deception to get the birthright. Jacob labored for seven years to get the woman that he fell in love with that was the daughter of Laban. Seven years. to get Rachel. And then he discovers after the ceremony and everything is over that Laban didn't give him Rachel. He gave him the other lady that he wasn't anywhere near as attracted to. And then he finds out he has to work another 14 years to finally get the lady he really loves. Well, it's a long story. But within this passage, there is the expression of surprise in different situations. I described the surprise that Isaac much, must have experienced when Abraham was about to offer him on, on the altar. And so when Esau complains to Isaac that his brother deceived him, Isaac is very, um, he isn't wanting to make up to Esau and say, oh, I feel so bad that happened. He, he, he's aware of the sacrifice that he experienced when that knife was about to go into him. Now Esau is experiencing surprise, a different kind of surprise, but it's now more the consequences of his own life of ungodliness. It's come to bear fruit in his life, and he finds out he's been robbed. Now the word Isaac means he shall laugh. And there was two surprises in Abraham's life. The first was the surprise that the promises that God made of him having a son Isaac didn't seem to come to pass because he's 99 years old and it, God promised him a son and there's no son. And he's beyond the capacity through a woman to have a child through Sarah. So that was the 
first surprise. It was a shocking surprise. But then Isaac, which means he shall laugh, speaks of the surprise of God coming forth out of a seeming contradiction that would seem like God had been against him and was unjust in the fact that he didn't seem to be keeping his promise. That shock, that thing that was so hard to bridge and understand, was persevered, nevertheless, out of the fear of God with a genuine faith that broke forth in laughter that if after all, God fulfilled his promise and Isaac was born. And so we see that it is he shall laugh, the name Isaac. And it's a laughter of the utter surprise that God has after all answered even way beyond what Abraham expected would happen and has revealed his goodness and that it was a perseverance faith to transverse the contradictions and the false accusations of the enemy that God was no longer trustworthy because he would allow such a thing to happen that Isaac wouldn't be brought forth. In fact, he was brought forth. And many of us know the story. Yes, I, Abraham tried to fulfill God's promise to have that son through Hagar and God Ishmael, which represented 13 years of trouble and from which we have the uh, Muslims and all the Arabians and all that today. And of course, there's the prophecy that uh, Ishmael, from which all the Arabians and the Muslims and Islam originates, it says that he would be a wild man and it, he would be against every man and every man would be against him and that prophecy has been fulfilled. Now Jacob is experiencing the shock of his trial as he discovers the shock that his brother Esau is going to kill him and he asks, how would God allow such a terrible thing? And then he experienced this, the shock of being deceived by Laban, who gave him uh, Leah instead of Rachel as his wife, after Laban for seven years promising him to have the wife he is, that he wanted, which he knew was Rachel, he gives him Leah. So he labors another seven years. But Jacob had deception in him, and the deception was unraveled through this process and came to a climax in the story that we all know about in Genesis, where he finally flees from Laban with taking a lot of his cattle through subtlety, still having that deceiving tendency in him, and yet he was cheated, he was deceived, and he felt justified in doing this to make up for all of his years of sweat and toil for 14 years. And what happens? He's brought to the place, fleeing from Laban with a wife and children that are quite young, where he knows he's going to face Esau, the man that vowed to kill him. 
And so he separates the children and he puts the sheep in front and makes it so it's easy for them, more easier for them to escape if Esau indeed decides to kill him. So he's facing a crisis in his life where all the deception is coming to a climax of consequence, where he's cornered and there's no way to go back or to go forward but to face Esau. And that night, in the trial that he experiences, the angel of the Lord comes and wrestles with him. It's a strange account. And he wrestles with Jacob almost all night. And Jacob keeps on saying, what is your name? He probably knows this is an angel. And he says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. So he realizes if God blesses him, he will deliver him and not only deliver him, but bless him abundantly. And he refuses to let go of this angel, even to the point where in the wrestling, his thigh is put out of joint, so he limps the rest of his life. And the angel of the Lord says to him, when he asks for his name, he says, I cannot tell you my name because it is wonderful. And we know that this is a theophany of Jesus Christ that took place many thousands of years, I don't know, thousands some odd years before Christ came. He appeared to Jacob, and it's Jacob said there, I saw God face to face. And God changed Jacob's name into Israel. And that is where the nation of Israel began, was through Jacob. And so now he faces Esau, and he brings many gifts before him after these many, many, many decades of not seeing his brother and his brother vowing to kill him. He said, it was as if I saw the face of God. And he comes to Esau, and Esau puts his arms around him and shows love and receives the gifts, and they're reconciled. And he receives the blessing of God in the provision of mercy when he knew he deserved Esau's wrath because he deceived him from the blessing that was rightfully his. Jacob went through a process of trial and of shock and surprise and contradiction, having to face his enemies. But he had the fear of God and that birthed of faith that persevered through these contradiction to the place of breakthrough, of resurrection light that bursts forth through the barriers of death and oppression and condemnation that he could have bought into. He rather chose to not let go of God and to believe through this trial that God would break through with blessing, and he did. And the word of God prophesies in the last days concerning the nation of Israel that she will be encompassed about with her enemies and her military might will finally be broken and she will be surrounded. And in that time of trouble, it says in the last days, it will be called the time of Jacob's trouble and there will be great tribulation on the earth as never was. And then God will intervene as it's described in Zechariah 12. 
and he will set his feet on the Mount of Olives with ten thousands and thousands of his saints, and the Mount of Olives will split in half as described in Zechariah 12 and possibly and also 13. And it says, they shall look on me whom they have pierced. That is God speaking. In this passage of scripture here, we see the surprise of people that are godly and that have good hearts and that fear God, but have deception in their lives facing the surprise of trials and contradictions that would seem to be indicative that God was their enemy and that there was no hope for them and that God was not fair. It would make them want to buy into that lie. But they persevered out of the fear of God to rather have an attitude as the word of God says in more than one place in the scripture, it says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Why do we trust God? Because we have a faith that he is ultimately good in whatever he allows in our lives. And that what is allowed is a consequence of the just holiness of God that allows such circumstances. And that we can look at those circumstances out of the eye of faith that perseveres with the light of God's revelation to the point that the clouds of separation are dissipated into the light that brings life everlasting. In Psalm 22, there is a related passage to the passage I'm just describing in Genesis 27. And I want to, it, this is a prophetic utterance of the coming atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross that is, was foretold at least around, I would say, a thousand years before Christ came. On this particular passage, I'm not going to be dead accurate on it, but I'm approximating. And it wouldn't hurt at this point in time to read some of this passage. I think this passage is significant. So we will turn to Psalms 22. Psalms 22. And it's not a long passage. So I want to point out a few things in it. It says at the beginning, the very statement that Christ said on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Remember, I'm talking about the surprise of discovering that though we have righteousness and pure motives in our heart, God has us in a situation where it appears he's forsaken us, that he is not good. Outwardly in our understanding, that is the temptation through trials. That's why it says in the word of God, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But count it all joy, knowing that God is allowing it 
to do a work of transformation in our lives. That's basically what it's saying. And then it goes on to say in that same book of Peter concerning these trials, them that suffer commit the keeping of their souls unto God as unto a faithful creator who always is doing good. Yes, all things work together to good for good to those that love God. Even when it seems we are going through a great trial. In this case, it is a description, a prophecy of Christ on the cross about a thousand years. And we go on to read, and it says this, Why art thou so far from helping me? And the words of my roaring, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. Christ was crucified in the daytime. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Notice there's the choice to acknowledge that though there's total contradictions that would seem to indicate that God is unrighteous towards us, that he is treating us as an enemy, there is the faith that believes that God's holy and that these consequences we're suffering are allowed of God Because he is holy. Because there is consequences of the rebellion of man that is reverberated from the time of Adam and Eve in the fall and from the devil himself in rebellion against God into the creation. And those consequences are due to the holiness of God that requires judgment. The holiness of God is the integrity of God's love that is as a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to the ultimate integrity and purity of his love. Only such an integrity or purity of love can contain unlimited power in life without dissipation or corruption and therefore contain it in goodness unto ever enlarging fulfillment in creative expression that goes on forever. And we read this passage and it says, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou, okay, I read that, but thou art holy. O thou that inhabitest the praise of Israel, our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. And I just was reading to you of how they trusted in God, like Jacob, like Abraham, through great contradictions. They cried unto thee and were delivered. Look at how Jacob cried unto God and wrestled with that angel. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. He's seeing himself is less than worthy. And then he describes the people that are surrounding him on the cross, all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb, thou didst make me hope upon my mother's breasts. 
I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. In the midst of being surrounded by the terrible suffering and the contradictions and the humiliation so that you feel less than human like a worm and no man and feel like, yeah, I deserve God's... Christ didn't deserve God's judgment. He was innocent. But we have to see that this is a foretype and a prophecy that also has King David in it as well, in his prophecy. And so we see here as we go on, that he sees his relationship from the very womb of his mother as being brought about by God. That God has had his hand on his life from his very birth. And so he has faith that somehow God is going to see him through. If he created him in the first place, he created him for purpose. For if God does not create beings with purpose and destiny, or to have the ability to choose his God's purpose and destiny and find it, then that would imply that God is less than perfect. And he knows that God is holy, ultimately trustworthy, that there's nothing in him. that is evil. That's his perception of God. Ultimate goodness in the integrity of God's love that requires judgment, that therefore is the containment of ultimate goodness and destiny for him personally. And he goes on and he says, be not far from me for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. This is the experience he's experiencing on the cross. And they describe the expert that this is exactly what a person feels like when they're being crucified on a cross. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a posture and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Tremendous thirst, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. What a prophecy right there, eh? They pierced my hands and my feet. And as he's trying to... Of course, when you're on that cross, you're kind of going up and down, up and down, and you can see all the bones in your ribs. So he says, I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. This is a prophecy of the very details of what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross. It was prophesied about a thousand years before he came. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O oh, my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. He expresses, even though he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Absolute faith in God's power to deliver him. 
And he goes on to say this, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Then he says this, ye that fear the Lord, praise him. He emphasizes the importance of fearing God and of praising God out of the fear of God. All ye seed of Jacob, glorify him. And then he emphasizes it again and fear him. All ye seed of Israel. That is because that is the secret to have faith birthed in our being that prevails through the trials to resurrection blessing, to the laughter of being freed from the captivity of the enemy. And he says this, for he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. But when he cried unto him, he heard. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them. What? That fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. And it goes on. All they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him, it shall be counted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. The last part isn't relevant to what I'm preaching on. The issue here is what is the secret to unravel deception in our lives that results in the consequences of trial and that brings us forth out of those deceptions into transformation of blessing and the change of our name from deceiver, meaning Jacob, to Israel, meaning he shall be a prince of God. The secret is in the right perception of God, in a choice to rightly perceive God through the contradictions and that choice was mentioned when I was speaking on the beginning of Psalms 22, where it says, after he's saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He says, but thou art holy. He acknowledges. He's not attributing unrighteousness to God and saying, God, you're not holy because you allowed all these terrible things to happen in my life. When Isaac had that knife about to be plunged through him, he could have thought that God wasn't holy. Abraham could have thought the same. Jacob could have thought the same when he was going to face his brother Esau. But they chose to have great reverence before God in the acknowledging of, of that only quality that is an acknowledging of ultimate trustworthiness of God. And that is a choice to rightly perceive God and his holiness, which is what is involved 
in choosing to fear God. It is the right perception of God as he indeed is in reality. He is, his love is an absolute, ultimate, pure integrity that requires judgment against the slightest that is contrary to ultimate love, which is always choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice that would be less and therefore would allow corruption and therefore not the containment of ultimate goodness that can go on forever and ever without end. God is calling us as the body of Christ to return to the genuine fear of God and heed the exhortation that is here being given to the nation of Israel for the last days when they will face the time of Jacob's trouble and when the body of Christ will also face being part of the commonwealth of Israel the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of great tribulation that the secret to overcoming is in the fear of God. Ye that fear the Lord, it says in verse 23, praise him, all ye seed of Jacob, glorify him, and fear him, all ye seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him, but when he cried on him, he did hear, he heard. We need to recognize that God hears us. Remember the first psalm I talked about, Psalm 35? How does David overcome the terrible attack of his enemies on that psalm? I emphasized that in that psalm, he's making de declarations on the God. He's even saying, God, tell me that you're my salvation. Then he's going on and he's saying, God, as it were, he's commanding God, but he isn't. He's declaring to God, God, you take hold of the shield. You take hold of the butler and you pierce the enemy. He has a declaration of faith in God's righteousness with confidence and authority until there's breakthrough. And he says that when I see the breakthrough, I am going to declare with the very core of my being, my bones will cry out and declare the glory of God. He says his bones will shout with great joy and declare the glory of God, the very core of who he is. So how does that relate to the passage I received today, which is Genesis chapter the account of Eve being beguiled by the serpent to take of the tree of the knowledge of the good of good and evil. I want to read the summation of what I said on this chapter that most people, at least in the body of Christ, are very familiar with, and those that aren't can read these chapters for themselves. I say this, before Adam and Eve fell by resisting temptation to take of the tree, before they fell, they still had to resist the temptation to take of the tree that they grew in, and this allowed them to grow into a greater and greater awareness of the goodness of God without the awareness of the reality of the consequences of evil in the same 
doesn't mean that they didn't know that there wasn't consequences because God said before Adam and Eve fell that there was consequences, that there was consequences of death, that if they took of that tree, they would die. Now, if you think of the angels and you think of creation before the Adam and Eve and the world were created, you have the angels before God. They're in the very direct presence of God and they're beholding this incredible power and glory and goodness and creativity that is ever expanding, ever enlarging. And they're also aware that the reason there is this ever expanding, enlarging glory and goodness and creative expression and that created them and gave them being is because there is such an integrity in the being of God's love to judge the slightest that would be contrary to his love. And so there's great reverence as they are partaking directly of the direct blessing and presence of God's glory. They recognize the absolute purity of God's love, the absolute glory of it, that there's consequences. Adam and Eve knew there was consequences before they fell. How do the angels perceive? So they're perceiving God in the direct flow of the Spirit of God in blessing. Beings that are created with tremendous power and glory. Here they are worshiping God utter reverence. When they leave the presence of God to do service, they back out in great reverence, bowing before God. That's what people say that have died and gone to heaven that they saw. So here we have the angels. And they're conscious that without God, they would not have destiny, meaning, or purpose. And so they're just filled with thankfulness that they were created by God and can experience the blessing and the fulfillment of his presence. And yet somehow, Lucifer, that was the highest of the angels, from what we can tell, came to a point when he actually chose to go against the direct presence of God's spirit of blessing and buy into the doubt that God was not ultimately trustworthy, that God was not ultimately perfect in his holiness, that he could actually be independent with this glory that God had given him and rise to equality with God and even above God, possibly. That was a choice to not fear God. It was the same choice that Eve made when she believed the lie of the serpent, which was Lucifer, that was the originator and the beginning of falling into this rebellion. The difference is that his was a direct rebellion against the direct presence of God with no outward things to cause temptation, as were placed in the garden with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I cannot go, my book goes into great detail and understanding on all of these things. In fact, I've even forgotten it because it's so in-depth. I can't just bring it to my mind right now and explain it. But it's not necessary for this. What I'm trying to point out here 
is that the choice, the moment Eve bought into the doubt that Satan gave that God was less than trustworthy, it was a choice to not recognize the absolute purity of God's love, the absolute trustworthiness of his being. It was a choice to not recognize the holiness of God, the integrity of his love. But before they fell, like the angels, there was two things they were conscious of. They were conscious of the absolute goodness of God and they were aware that there was consequences as God had said there would be consequences if they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it wasn't as prominent. The, the consciousness of the consequences of evil and of that reality were not as prominent. So when the consequences actually happened and they realized they were beguiled by the serpent and deceived by their own hearts, they experienced the shock of surprise. Just like Isaac experienced, like Abraham experienced that God would actually ask him to offer his son, just like many of the patriarchs experienced. And they went through the trial of the consequences of their own deception, just like Jacob, deceiver, went through. But that caused them to be desperate. They realized they were naked. What does that speak of? That speaks of the fact that once they made a choice that did not fear God, a choice to not fear God, to buy into the fact that God must be less than ultimately trustworthy, less than ultimately good, and that we can therefore go our own ways, or as Cain, who was offended at the consequences of God's holiness in the judgment of the curse and the sweat and toil of labor and all the other in death, and he became... And he went his own way and formed his own self-oriented conception of a God that was holy and demanding but lost sight of the goodness of God because he bought into the lie that God was not ultimately good. Might have not been of conscious in, in his mind. He might have said, oh, I believe God is ultimately good. But in his heart, he had bought into the lie. That did not perceive the goodness of God that caused the hardness in the heart, that caused him to look at God as an enigma, as someone that was far and distant and mysterious, because why would he let all these things happen? And that results in forming our own idolatrous perception of God so that we walk in an idolatrous deception. In the case of Adam and Eve, they in their desperation tried to cover their nakedness. The nakedness speaks of the fact that the moment we choose to not fear God and we buy into it and not by believing the lie that God is not holy, that there is something less than trustworthiness in God, the moment we do that, we are cut off from God's presence. And there's an emptiness left in our being that is like a black hole in outer space. This is exactly what happened to Lucifer. He made a choice to not fear God and worship. 
and believe the lie that he could actually be like God. And so, when that happens, there is a void because we're cut off from the presence of God that forms in our being that can only be filled by the Spirit of God. And since we do not now have the Spirit of God, in desperation we try to fill that void. And we grasp and pull things into our life like a black hole in outer space, never being able to be satisfied because it was only made to find satisfaction in the Spirit of God. consequences of that are that a person comes to a place where they can finally see the futility of their own ways of independence or they can harden their heart in the deception of their own self-projections of God that justifies their own independent ways from God that leads to greater and greater deceptions and hardness of rebellion and ultimately eternal separation from the very source of love and life which results in a state of hell, of eternal suffering. Or we can choose to receive the love of God which he freely provides to those that will receive his atoning work on the cross. And with Adam and Eve, they came to see the futility of their own ways, which is symbolized in them trying to put on those leaves to cover their nakedness. Before they fell, they experienced the completeness of God's presence. The word of God says that perfect love casts out fear because fear has uptightness in it. Or torment in it. Now, fear is the consciousness of loss to self. That is basically what fear is. It is the opposite of the consciousness of being totally complete and satisfied, which is only found in relationship with the Creator, who is the very author and finisher of our life, the very source of life and of love. When Adam and Eve acknowledged their nakedness before God when he was walking in the garden, and they were honest and confessed their sin unto God and what they had done, God showed mercy to them and covered them with animal skins, which represents animals being slain for sin in the innocent lamb, that they put their hands on as a symbol of their sins being transferred onto that lamb. Jesus Christ is called the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I do not have time to go in here and explain all of this, but they recognized that the source of forgiveness was only in God, that the animal could not represent their soul or spirit, but that by doing this, it was a symbol of them receiving the mercy of God that could only be found in God, the forgiveness that could only be in God. And they recognized in the character of God that because he was holy and would not tolerate sin, and yet without violating that integrity of his love, they recognized that it could only be in God that there could be a perfect atoning sacrifice. Only in God was there the moral capacity to 
for a human being to live a perfect, righteous life and be a substitutionary sacrifice for their sin. Because they recognized that God was the source of forgiveness. That the animal could cleanse the physical body and allow God's presence to dwell with their soul and spirit, but not to indwell it. As Christ said, but you know him for he dwells with you and shall be in you after he dies on the cross because then the soul and spirit can be cleansed and there can be direct access into the presence of God through prayer. But God's spirit always did dwell with him and I will not go into describing in this message all about being born again of the spirit and how that happened from the time of Adam and Eve till now. But I want to close this passage by just uh, mentioning the thing that I'm emphasizing is that with Adam and Eve, they came to, they did not lose the fear. They came back to the place where they chose to fear God and to receive his provision of forgiveness. They came out of the dark. They came out of hiding when God's voice was saying, where are you? They faced the light. They acknowledged the holiness of God, that they deserve God's judgment. They exposed themselves to God's just judgment and the consequences that they would deserve, but recognized God's forgiveness to them and God's provision of the animal skins that allow them now to know a completeness in their soul that would swallow up the fear, which is symbolized in those animal skins that covered them, which speaks of Christ covering us in his righteousness through his love that outpoured his blood, the life of his life, in love for us by suffering more than you, a mere creature, and humbling himself more than you, a mere creature. Just think of that, the creator of the universe, having that love for you, so that you could have the choice to freely receive his mercy by simply saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I make you the Lord and the Savior of, your, of my life. I ask you, Jesus Christ, to cleanse me of all my sin and make me white as snow, to forgive me of all my sin. I ask for your goodness and your mercy. And I trust that whatever I have to go through, I will always trust in you, that you are good, and that you will in the end bring me out the other side, transformed. I will always choose to fear you. That is to recognize your holiness that is totally trustworthy to contain ultimate everlasting goodness. Well, I've been preaching for well over an hour. And I pray that this message has been a blessing to you and that we will persevere to the unraveling of those things in our lives that are not of God, that brings us into the place where, as the word of God says, after you have suffered a while, he will strengthen, establish, and settle you. We can always trust in the power of God to break forth no matter how great the contradictions in our lives. The greater the contradictions, the greater of the work of God's creativity in those contradictions to bring an even greater blessing and a greater resurrection experience. 
through every trial. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this message.